Hey everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode of The Francis Effect. Uh, Father Dan and I are both social distancing. He's in his house a few blocks away from my house here in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. But I'm glad to be with you, Dan. I hope that you're doing well. David, always good to be with you. Good things are happening despite the bad things that are happening. Well, uh, today we're going to continue the kind of bonus conversations that we've been having. And off microphone, when, when Dan and I have been talking about this, one of the things that we thought was instead of keeping things kind of topical and news related, we'd instead use these times to talk a little bit more about uh, more kind of evergreen theological and philosophical topics. And so that's going to continue for, for today. And so I'm going to set a couple of pieces in place in order to get to my first question. And my, my overall desire today, Dan, is to talk to you about spirituality. But to get there, I want to, I want to put a couple things on the table. When I teach introductory classes, I oftentimes will use the following ex- example. I will say to the class, do we know that Jesus ate food? And they will say, yes. And I'll say, how do we know that? And they will say, well, we read it in the Bible. Okay, we've got scripture, and we have we have pretty good archaeological evidence that people in the first century actually ate food. So we've got archaeological evidence and scriptural evidence. And the, the archaeological evidence confirms the scriptural evidence. And I'll, I'll say to the class, fantastic, we're now doing biblical studies. This is like New Testament hermeneutics and context. All right. And then I will ask a second question and I'll say, okay, did Jesus go to the bathroom? And they will look at me funny because that's a funny question, but it's not attested in scripture. No, but it is in the other non-canonical gospel, everybody poops. (laughs) (laughs) Famous children's book. Sorry, sorry. Yes. No, no. But what I'll say to them is, is, okay, so here we have something that kind of follows from the first scriptural evidence, you know, that Jesus ate food, it, it follows logically as a consequence that Jesus went to the restroom, but we don't have a direct attestation in Scripture. But if we, if we answer that question in a different way than, yes, he did, then that begins to have serious consequences for things like our ability to identify with Jesus' salvation and things like that. And when, when we do that, I say, okay, now we're talking about things that follow logically from Scripture but are not directly in Scripture. Congratulations, we're doing theology. And, uh, and so then they begin to understand kind of a—they uh, get some handles to understand the difference between scriptural studies, things that are there in, in the text, and theological studies, which kind of— uh, kind of grow out of that. And I say these two things to then ask, when we begin to talk about an academic discipline known as spirituality, it's much harder to find the handles for that and to give someone a ready definition for what we're doing and how it relates to scripture or theology. And so that is kind of my first question for you, because you are a professor of spirituality. That's one of your titles. Uh, I have just been hired as a professor of spirituality. That's going to be one of my titles. But I am wondering how, when you're asked what it is that you do in terms of your discipline, how you describe what it is that you do. It's a great question, um, and it's an interesting exercise pedagogically with your students, so I appreciate your sharing that. Um, so a, a couple things come to mind. First is that spirituality is, in and of itself, a, a very uh, it can be a very amorphous theme, and that's in part because of the way it's used colloquially. This is oftentimes the case with matters of faith, theology, scripture studies, and so forth, and other disciplines as well, not just with religion. 
Um, if you walk into a Barnes and Noble or your local bookstore, particularly if they're not a, including a whole variety of religious or philosophical themed books, you might have a generic section called spirituality, and you'd have anything in there from a book by you know Pope Francis to Richard Rohr and Joan Chittister to you know uh, Bob Barron, Bishop Barron to um, you know. Uh, tarot card reading and witchcraft and, and everything in between, right? Uh, gems and crystals and these kinds of things. And everything falls under this general heading of spirituality. So spirituality has a kind of mushy feel to it to begin with. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that as an academic discipline, and I want to make a couple distinctions here because as an academic discipline, it's something different from how it's understood in other arenas. There are other ways to think about it, even systematically, even kind of technically or academically, beyond a methodological kind of field distinct from biblical studies or ethics or systematic theology or dogmatic theology and the like, right? And to, to get into that, I want to tell a little story that um, uh, a former professor of mine uh, once told me, he was a professor of historical theology and spirituality at Catholic University, and he, he tells the story about how uh, he was recently hired, you know, and has this title of, you know, professor of spirituality, and they have a doctoral degree uh, with a concentration in spirituality there. And so this is not a surprise, but they, you know, there was some kind of gathering, a faculty gathering or something of this sort, and one of the dogmatic or systematic theologians was introducing himself to this guy, and he said, Oh, you know, and what's your area again? He says, oh, you know, I teach historical theology and spirituality. And the guy goes, ah, yes, spirituality. He says, cheese is to cheese whiz as theology is to spirituality. And it was, you know, really intended as an insult, but it was a reflection, I think, as, as much of a caricature and a stereotype as it is, of this kind of mushy, colloquial, kind of like everyday thinking about spirituality. It's the way that I think a lot of people on the street would think about, or people in the pews for that matter, about the discipline of theology, that it's not a serious discipline like you think of chemistry or history or philosophy or something like that. Um, part of that is because, academically speaking, the field of spirituality or spirituality studies, as we say in North America, um, is relatively new. It's only about 30 or 40 years old as a discrete discipline, though spirituality itself is obviously uh, millennia old. Uh, on the other side of the pond in Europe, they have uh, a, a different approach. They call it spiritual theology as the academic discipline. And there are some small nuances and differences that we could talk about if you'd like um, in a minute as, as over the last 40 years or so, the study of spirituality has developed um, over the decades. But I want to say something about what spirituality actually means. And there are really, there's, there's a kind of a classic in the field of spirituality studies. There's a classic article that's written by a historical theologian from Canada named Walter Princope, who was a Brazilian priest, uh, taught at the University of Toronto. And he said that spirituality really can mean three different things. The first thing that it means is the lived experience of faith. So I think this is closer to the popular understanding, right, that colloquial understanding of spirituality. Spirituality is the way that one actualizes their faith. It includes prayer. It includes an understanding of who God is, who we are, how we relate to one another and the rest of creation and so forth. You could think of it as like a worldview, and that would be the lived experience of faith. That's the first understanding of spirituality. The second understanding of spirituality is teachings about that lived experience, and so here, this is this is you're starting to get more into my area of concentration as a scholar of spirituality. 
is somebody who specializes in 13th century Franciscan thought um, and contemporary appropriations of medieval Franciscan theology, history, and spirituality, as well as 20th century spirituality, in, particularly in the area of, of the work of Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk, uh, an American writer. Um, and so we could think of that, you know, what we mean by that second understanding, what Principe means as teachings about that lived experience of faith we're talking about as it's articulated, formulated in the wisdom traditions, various schools of spirituality. So you might think of, and I know this is your area of interest, uh, especially now of Ignatian spirituality, that which flows from the Jesuit tradition, or Franciscan spirituality, which is my area of expertise, Carmelite spirituality. My colleague, uh, Sister Mary Froelich, is a, is a world-renowned expert in, in Carmelite spirituality. That would be the second type. And then finally, the third meaning of spirituality is the academic study of the first two. Um, and they are, you know, and this oftentimes takes the form of methodology. So this is kind of a, a newer area over the last five years or so of my own research. Um, I actually presented at a conference in Rome, Italy, back in September uh, uh, in, in, in this particular area, which is um, the methodological approach to the academic study of spirituality. And um, it's 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 really quite fascinating, and it's grown um, up around you know the emergence of 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 spirituality as an as a distinct academic discipline under the heading of theology writ large. So those are the three areas: the lived experience of faith, various teachings about the lived experience of faith, and then the academic study of the of either of those two things, oftentimes focused on methodology. Okay, so there's a lot there, and I appreciate you giving it in such kind of clear detail in terms of these three areas. So I'm going to also now ask a follow-on question, because oftentimes when I am teaching spirituality over the past few years, uh, there has been a kind of overlap with what we might call mysticism or the mystical experience. And so how do you define the breakpoint, or do you, between a kind of mystical experience which might extend beyond the Christian experience and something like spirituality or Christian spirituality? And so a Sufi whirling like a dervish or a person sitting and chanting Om, Om, Om in the Buddhist tradition, they might be having mystical experiences which we might classify as spiritual in your earlier example of like going into the bookstore and looking on the bookshelf. But I'm not necessarily clear if that would be the same kind of experience that we're talking about in the academic study of Christian spirituality. And so how do you think well, about that, that division? Yeah, so I mean, you just added a qualifier that I didn't include earlier that Walter Prinkepe also doesn't include. You said Christian spirituality, so that narrows it right away. I mean, if you say the study of Christian spirituality, then you're talking about the Christian tradition— you know, if you talk, if you look at those three categories, which I subscribe to, I think they're very helpful. They're not perfect, but they're helpful categories. You know, study of Christian spirituality, one, the lived experience of Christian faith, two, various schools and approaches and wisdom traditions and classics, as David Tracy would say, around Christian traditions like the Franciscan movement or the Ignatian tradition or the Carmelite movements and so forth. Or third, the academic study of the first two, which is a methodological approach that presupposes Christian theological claims, right, as as normative. Um, but but you're so you kind of threw that in there inadvertently at the end. But but the question about mysticism, mysticism, really is would fall into categories one and three, right? Mysti a mystical experience, which again, like spirituality, like a lot of other terms, has many meanings and many, and it's conditioned in part by the various traditions we're talking about. 
or philosophies or practices. Um, most often, it's it's understood in first person, kind of first order level of experience, and therefore that's the lived experience of faith. But then what becomes really tricky, and this is where the academic part comes in, is how does one study this first order lived experience of faith? And so I teach a course, I'm actually teaching it this fall, um, it's a doctoral level course on um, methods for the academic study of spirituality. And this is basically something we circle around throughout, you know, 14 weeks of study and, and seminar is, is, you know, okay, you're working on a master's degree or a doctoral degree in concentrating in an area of spirituality. What are you doing? <laughs> How do you do it? Right? That's the whole premise. So, well, if somebody's having a mystical experience and that's the lived experience of one's faith, how do you have access to that? So it raises questions about second-level reflections, which are oftentimes expressed. You know, they're written down, they're passed on, uh, they're they're expressed in forms of art or in terms of prayer or in terms of journals or you know, they're they're a oral tradition. There are lots of different ways we can think about this. Um, but I would say that mysticism is a category to talk about a particular kind of spiritual experience. And, you know, um, perhaps the greatest expert in this area, studying it academically and does so with a historical approach, is Professor Bernie McGinn. Uh, he's an emeritus professor at the University of Chicago, and he's written a what I think is now a six-volume uh, study of the history of Christian mysticism. Um, and, you know, it's really just, it's a, it's a tour de force. Um, so I, I recommend to our listeners, if they're interested in that, you know, McGinn is his last name, uh, Bernard McGinn. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, David. I, I think I would say that mysticism is a subset. It's, it's, it's a type of experience of one's faith. Um, and therefore it falls under the larger umbrella of, of spirituality studies kind of writ large. You did, and and that that arrangement. So whether mysticism is sort of the broad canvas behind what we might call a study of spirituality, or whether spirituality is the larger subject and mysticism is a subset of that, I recognize that there are differing academic opinions. You've shown me where you plant your flag, and I think that that's really helpful. Um, I think that you've also touched on something that I imagine led to the kind of cheese versus cheese whiz comment that you talked about a moment ago, and that is when we are talking about spirituality and mysticism, we're talking about something that is a primary, very subjective experience. And oftentimes it is ineffable. It is the sublime washing over us. And it is hard to put that into words and to make that qualifiable and studyable. And I think that is what leads people sometimes to imagine that there's not a lot of there there. But as I've begun to just dip my toe into this tradition over the past few years, what I have come to realize is the depth and the complexity and the, the differences that we find in terms of the various ways that people articulate this experience of the inexpressible, this experience of the spirit kind of washing over them. And so I guess my next question would be, as you have been studying this, I know that you have a great affinity for Thomas Merton, and you certainly come from the Franciscan tradition. And so is it safe to say that Merton and the Franciscan tradition are where you find the richest vein of this, or are there other spiritual thinkers and writers that you have discovered where you find great reward uh, that maybe I wouldn't have anticipated knowing your background? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, so the, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, my joke about Thomas Merton is that um, 
you know, people ask me, how do I get interested in Merton? How did I become so involved? You know, I'm serving now uh, my fourth term on the board of directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. I'm on the editorial board of the scholarly peer-reviewed journal called Merton, the Merton Annual. You know, I've published books on Merton. I'm working on a decade-long research project on Merton and, you know, so on and so on. I've, t- I've taught courses and so forth and organized conferences and people say, well, how did you get so into him? And my honest answer is he was a hobby that grew out of control. Um, and that, uh, I would say that I first started reading Merton was drawn to his, uh, both his teachings and his experience. So this is going to get kind of meta. So I hope our listeners are writing down those three Walter Prinkepe levels here, because on the one hand, I was drawn to his own expression of his lived experience of faith. I felt like it touched me, it resonated with me, uh, it inspired me in many ways. Um, but then, you know, I also was drawn to what we might call that third level, his kind of academic study of the Christian tradition, which he articulates in what becomes kind of the second level of Principe's, you know, typology, which is that he he himself has left behind a, a rather prolific body of work that is itself a kind of wisdom tradition, a kind of classic that continues to inspire, that continues to be a source of richness for so many people, including myself. So I was drawn originally because of its benefit for me in my own prayer life, in my own lived experience of faith, that understanding of spirituality. And the more I got drawn into that, the more I found myself, you know, studying that work, that body of work. And that's what I mean when I'm jokingly saying that it grew out of control is that it's become now, especially as, as I'm a, you know, a professor and a scholar and a researcher, that this is one of my areas of interest. Um, I didn't set out that way. I just kind of, I feel like it was truly like, you know, something that I was drawn to by God, you know, as part of, you know, this natural kind of organic experience. The Franciscan tradition, clearly, I mean, that kind of, it's, it goes without saying in some ways, um, it is the the kind of core of my life. Um, and, and not just because I wear an 800-year-old fashionable brown robe, um, but because, you know, the reason I wear that, the reason I'm, you know, drawn to the Franciscan order and, and have become a part of it, become a friar all these years ago, is precisely because, you know, the wisdom tradition, this, the charism of the Franciscan movement, the spirituality that Francis and Claire of Assisi really inaugurated and then was developed in centuries, decades and centuries that followed, uh, really speaks to me as well and it inspires me. Um, so th- those are really, really deep wells of, of spiritual enrichment, but they're not the only ones. You know, I, I don't think anyone's really asked me about, you know, um, I think the way I would describe other areas of of inspiration, other kind of sources of spiritual wisdom for me that are not in those two categories form a kind of third bricolage, you know, this idea of kind of little things from here, little things from there. So I'll, I'll give you an example. The Ignatian tradition is very, very popular, and that's part, and that's for many good reasons. One of which is it's a very structured form of of spiritual practice. You have the, you know, the the exercises famously, and you have a, a kind of pattern for um, for reflection and renewal and retreat. Um, you know, and there are elements of that that are oftentimes lifted up. One of them is the use of the imagination in one's prayer life. Now, that didn't start with Ignatius. It's not unique to the Ignatian tradition. He actually gets it from both the Franciscans and the Benedictines that came many, many centuries before he was even born. Um, and scholars of spirituality know this. This is not, I'm not 
you know, just pulling this out of the air. Um, so there's some of that that I already find in my own Franciscan tradition, right? But here's something that I've always loved about Ignatius and, and the kind of tradition that flows from the Jesuits, and that is the practice of the examine, which is just spending just a few moments at the end of the day to ask a simple question like, where was God today? And the answer is always surprising. It's really quite extraordinary. It's a beautiful prayer. So that's like one little thing, right? Um, I've never been particularly drawn to the Carmelites, so I don't have much to say about them. Uh, but I do like some of the Benedictine uh, practices, and, and particularly the emphasis on, on liturgy and worship and prayer. Uh, the Lexio Divina tradition arises, really, is made popular by the Benedictines. So those kinds of things have been like little nuggets, little kind of sources of wisdom, wisdom and inspiration for me. How about you? David, I mean, how are what, what what do you find inspiring? So I come to spirituality through my 15 years with the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, and uh, they have a their own rich tradition of of thinkers and journalists, uh, those that wrote journals along the way. And so I I think a lot about George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, who really had a direct experience of Christ in a way that changed and transformed his life and the life of those that followed him. And the notion that somehow Christ was able to be accessed in a way that you could feel uh, in worship, but also in terms of uh, in terms of an idea that our, our friend Brian Massingale has talked about in terms of moral courage. And so we, we get many accounts from the Quaker tradition of those who stand in front of those in authority who are threatening them, and they got their name Quaker Quaker because they would literally tremble in the spirit as they, as they stood there. And so the idea that somehow this invisible thing has a physical effect, and I've, you know, as a practitioner for 15 years of Quakerism, I have felt that physical effect effect when when the spirit covers a meeting or when the spirit grabs you and, and lifts you to your feet and you need to give a testimony to to a to a meeting during worship or when you feel a leading that leads you to to change some aspect of your life. And I, I would say that the other kind of uh, Quaker personage spiritually that I have seen as a touchstone, and I've talked to you about this uh, off mic a lot, is the uh, the Quaker John Woolman, who was very, very involved in the abolitionist movement, and to the, to the extent that he refused to let his economic choices su- support in any way the practice of slavery, and he started the Quaker practice of plain dress, or he was one of the ones that started the Quaker practice of plain dress, dressing in gray, dressing in clothing that was not dyed with the dyes that came over on the same ships that brought the, the, the slaves. And so I, you know, my own inclinations to think about economics and my own inclinations to think about the ways in which my beliefs and my faith impact my daily habits of life have been deeply influenced by these spiritual practices, which are both spiritual and economic. Um, and I really like those moments when spirituality touches on something very practical and uh, very active. In my in the in the New Testament class that I teach at Loyola, we just got done reading the Book of James, and the whole notion from Show the Book me of your James, faith. exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I, I was saying to them, you know, in in the Reformation, Martin Luther says sola fide by faith alone, but then in James two twenty four, it says not by faith alone, but by your works will you be judged and saved. And so to me, that really that really kind of cements both my Quakerism and my Catholicism. It's a it's a lived spirituality that has practical effects on the way that one behaves and the way that one sort of navigates the world. 
And to me, that's really important. And and so I guess I would then ask you as as one of our kind of final questions on this topic, you know, spirituality is an invisible thing. Can it change the world? Does it change the world? And what are some examples you've seen of ways in which it has impacted and affected the world on the large scale? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love that question. I, I think it's really good. There's there's one other thing I think I'd like to talk about so we can come back around and maybe make this our penultimate question or, or conversation topic. Um, I'm reminded of when I was a master's student in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Theological Union, um, Gustavo Gutierrez gave a lecture. And um, for those who aren't familiar, Gustavo Gutierrez is sometimes called the father of uh, Latin American liberation theology. He's a Peruvian, now Dominican priest, a theologian. He wrote the uh, the book, uh, Theology of Liberation. He wrote a very powerful little book on uh, the book of Job and about kind of theodicy and why suffering in the world and so forth. And I'll never forget the the theme of his lecture was something that he was developing, but not not something that was original to the early 2000s when I was studying in DC, but it's something that he's been kind of that keeps resurfacing in his work over the years and his, his profound theological work, which is that he says spirituality precedes theology. You know, a lot of people, this, this sort of torpedoes that whole cheese whiz stereotype because his point is that theology has to be anchored in something that arises out of something. And if we understand going back to Walter Prinkepe's early 1980s article where he talks about the lived experience of faith, that's the starting point for theological reflection. Um, and so for me, I think that's really indicative what is it that we say we believe and how do we experience that faith? Now, you mentioned George Fox. I think also of, you know, Frederick Schleiermacher in the 19th century. You know, he also had this notion of, of kind of kind of viscerally, you can kind of feel this assurance of, of one's faith. You know, that's just kind of like an almost a you know, uh, I don't know, this kind of like, you know, you're dependent on God. And therefore, that is the starting point of one's experience of faith. And and one doesn't have to necessarily buy into that. Um, or as he articulates it, and I'm probably doing a poor job of our Schleiermacherian, uh, you know, scholars who listen to this are going to write in. But, um, but I do think that, you know, how one, the way you described the role of Quakerism in your own life as you know, in very practical terms about how one dresses, about how one spends one's money and time, you know, that that all arises from exactly this point about spirituality as the lived experience of faith. You know, how do you live out what it is you say you believe? And, you know, I think what Gutierrez talks about, and I think, you know, in the same sort of, you know, kind of line of thinking, St. Anselm in the 11th century, or really, yeah, 11th century, late 11th century, would agree when he talks about theology as fides corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Well, the starting point, again, is this notion of faith. So if spirituality is a worldview, if it's the experience of the faith that we say we believe, and if, you know, I could say a lot more about this, but I'll, I'll just keep it brief, then I think that's the starting point, and that any change is really grounded in that experience of faith in that spirituality. Um, I think there can be other forms of spirituality, too, that are not just Christian or not just theistic. Uh, I'm not saying they're all the same or they're all equal, but I think about somebody like, uh, you know, the young Greta Thunberg, who is, um, you know, this teenager uh, climate activist. And, you know, I'm not familiar with whether or not she, you know, has a particular religious tradition or not, but I can imagine, you know, a young Generation Z person like herself who may not identify with the religious tradition. Nevertheless, 
operates with a spirituality that sees the world, her place within it, and the broader kind of cosmic community as the starting point for her life choices and actions. And that's what we would talk about in terms of a lived experience of faith. And we could, I think, rightly, you know, whether she would recognize it or not, and again, I'm just using this as one random example, um, I, I think we could talk about an authentic spirituality of some kind. I mean, what are your thoughts on this, David? Well, I, I, I love the idea of a spirituality that doesn't necessarily have to define itself religiously. And in particular, when you use the example of Greta Thunberg, uh, she identifies herself as being on the autistic spectrum. And I have done some work on spirituality and responsibility and theology around kind of non-neurotypical thinkers. And, and I really like the idea that that we might expand the idea of spirituality to include those who wouldn't use the normal categories or wouldn't use the normal language that we would expect a spiritual person to use. And so I think that she's actually a fantastic example because she has a capacious sense of identification with the world and with the plight of the world. And I would, I would see that as an example of a type of spiritual awareness and consciousness that begins to gesture towards that question that I asked a moment ago that would really have an impact on the world. And I think that oftentimes we have a spirituality, particularly in America, that's very individually focused and very much curved in on ourselves. It's about my enlightenment. It's about my spiritual attainment. And it's not about necessarily creating a community or participating in a community of awareness that reaches outside of itself. And so I think she's a fantastic example and one worth talking about. But you you raise the issue that she might not identify herself by this categorization, which is also an important and fascinating, I think, question to raise. And, and so let me then kind of ask a, a, a question following from that. What when we look at a spiritual practice, and I, I made the I made the comment earlier about kind of talking about Christian spiritual practices, but when we look at, at a human practice and we as academics we call it spiritual, are we in some ways imposing a set of categories on it? And should we always listen instead to the people who are practitioners who are having that experience directly for what they call it? Or do we have the right and the ability to sort of classify things as spiritual or non-spiritual from a vantage point of a distance? You kind of get what I'm I saying? I do, yeah. I mean, what you're really asking is an, analyti- an analytical and methodological question. It, well, and it's an ethical question, too, I think. It could be. Yeah, yeah it certainly could be. Um, well, yeah, insofar as it's an ethical question, I don't think there should be any imposition, if that's what you're suggesting. So I, I think I'm in agreement with you that, that this isn't about predicating of others your, you know, categories and typology and that sort of thing. So that I, I'm, I'm prescinding from that. I don't think, I think you're right, that's unethical. But I'm thinking more about, you know, whether or not somebody identifies that way. As a scholar, you know, you... You know, it's it's like it's sort of a bizarre example, but it's like a, a natural scientist, a chemist, or a biologist, or an epidemiologist who's studying a virus or a bacterium or something. Like this you don't have to ask permission of the bacterium, or the bacterium doesn't have to sign off on you know the the taxonomy you use to understand you know its origins and 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 relationships and so forth. Um, and I think that's you know you know. I think that's true, generally speaking. So I don't mean studying an individual person like an anthropologist would necessarily, like a cultural anthropologist. But I think in terms of, you know, 
I keep thinking about another University of Chicago Divinity School professor emeritus. This is uh, Father David Tracy. Um, and he, like his colleague Bernie McGinn, have been deeply, deeply influential in the establishment of a, a, dis, a distinct discipline called the studies of spirituality, academic study of spirituality. And I, I, this is the thing I wanted to come back to, so this is probably a good segue to it, um, which is to say, because I made that comment very early on in our conversation, that's a relatively new discipline. What I don't mean by that is that it is you know, a novel thing, like a, like a, a fad or something like this. What I mean by that is as a distinct discipline with its own rules, structures, parameters, um, just like, you know, science over the last 400 years, the natural sciences, even the social sciences and so forth have emerged into different discrete disciplines. Spirituality studies has done a similar sort of thing, but what's interesting about it is that the leaders have all come out of different other theological disciplines. So David Tracy is a systematic theologian who focuses on hermeneutics. And so his concern is about interpretation, which speaks to exactly your point. How do we interpret this wealth of material, individual experiences, collective experiences, practices, and so forth? And he famously had developed this notion, not just with spirituality, but, but more broadly as well, called the classic. And he says that there can be artwork, there could be individuals, there could be writings, there could be texts, there could be music, there can be all sorts of expression, the content that could be identified as a classic, which means it, it transcends the historical and temporal limitations of something that is otherwise fleeting. So, you know, classics move beyond time. They move, they can be enculturated in a variety of circumstances. They are not limited to an individual's own experience, but speaks to the heart or to the experience of others and so forth. So, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, the musical pieces, Handel's Messiah has stood the test of time as a, as a classic, right? And one could study Handel's Messiah as a score and as a musical work, not just from a musical perspective, which has its own field and rules and discipline, but from the study of spirituality, you could approach Handel's Messiah as a spiritual classic and study it according to the rules of the academic study of spirituality. So that's Tracy comes in from a hermeneutical perspective. Sandra Schneiders, uh, who is an IHM sister and a, and a kind of very renowned biblical scholar, she comes from the biblical tradition, um, but also very interested in hermeneutics, as you might imagine from biblical studies. They're very interested in how do we interpret this particular text, right, the Bible, or as a collection of texts. And so she has contributed to the emergence of the Christian study of spirituality hermeneutically as well. I think of Bernie McGinn, I mentioned him earlier, he's a historical theologian. He's coming from a historical lens, a historical perspective. I think of the work of Walter Prinkepe, who I've cited earlier. He's a historical theologian as well. Now he's deceased, but it, it was a historical theologian. Or I might think of... Um, uh, Bernard Lonergan, uh, the late Jesuit theologian himself, uh, very focused on methodology and hermeneutics. You know, he's somebody who contributes to the field of the study of spirituality. So a long winded way, that's just, that's some of the things I wanted to highlight is that, you know, it's, it's emerging still, but there are, there is a form of consensus around some of these ideas, but it's interesting as a field that see the kind of confluence of a lot of different thinkers and approaches and borrowing methodological insights and practices of, you know, that are rigorous and, and engaged in other disciplines to help form a new way of 
of answering the question you asked. And this is my long-winded way of doing that, is to point to that whole trajectory that how do we approach these things? Well, it depends. Do you approach it primarily historically? Do you approach it primarily hermeneutically? Do you approach it primarily um, sociologically? There are a lot of, these days, a lot of people interested in the sociological analysis of, let's say, the Quaker movement and the practices of Quakers when they gather to worship together in silence and so forth. So there are a lot of different approaches, but that doesn't make it a flimsy, cheese-whizzy discipline. There are a lot of different approaches to theology and to scripture study and to philosophy and to biology and so forth. So I wanted to, I didn't want us to depart without highlighting. It's really exciting. It's, it's still in many ways a field that is emerging. There are new methodological approaches. Um, but, but the kind of questions that you're asking, David, are the kind of questions that scholars of spirituality are, are asking right now and are working on. It's fascinating. You mentioned just a moment ago uh, treating uh, something like Handel's Messiah as one of these classic texts, and I think about some archival work I was doing, I guess, about 10 years ago now, and I was at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and I was working with their archivist, and they have a copy of the Bible commentary by Kalov that uh, Bach used as Bach was composing, you know, the hymns. And so they are looking in a scholarly way at, at the way in which this resource text that kind of talks about interpretations of the Bible can be seen woven into the way in which these compositions came to be. And so I, I love the way that you've kind of broken this out for for me and for us listeners in this conversation, because I think that, that I'm already beginning to see these kind of uh, connections and networks of possibility for talking about spirituality. And I really am excited by the idea that it's just as you said, it's not it's not a new concept. But the academic approach to it is relatively new and still has that kind of ability to put together things in new combinations to find new ways of answering questions that I think is going to be a very exciting thing for us to continue talking about for years to come. Well, and I think, you know, it is. It's, it certainly is. It's very exciting about it is that, um, you know, it's emerging as as a discrete discipline that's recognized as such. Um, and and separating itself in some ways from other fields like biblical studies or uh, philosophy or theology or ethics. You know, you mentioned ethics a couple times already. You know, there there is it's tied to all these things. But you know, again, you and I are both trained as systematicians as well. You know, it's interesting. My major area of my doctoral work is systematic theology, but my minor area was historical theology. So it lends itself to these two lenses in my own methodological approach to the study of spirituality. I'm I'm actually much more historically focused in my work, but also then approach it hermeneutically as a systematician. But as a systematic theologian, you know, the term systematic comes from this, for, not for you, you know this obviously, but for our listeners, that, that theology is a system that's intertwined. You know, you can't talk about God without talking about Christ. You can't talk about Christ without talking about the Holy Spirit. You can't talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about the church. You can't talk about the church without talking about the sacraments. You can't talk about the sacraments without talking about the people. You can't talk about the people without talking about Christ again and so forth. They're all tied together. And I think, you know, just like you can kind of zoom in on any one of those theological loci, spirituality has earned its place, you know, as a discrete discipline with, or we might say subdiscipline within the field of theology writ large. And that, you know, something like ethics, you can't talk about ethics without worldviews that are shaped by practices that are shaped by experiences of prayer that we would identify as, as spirituality. So it's all, it all kind of comes together. 
I love this, and I think that's a good place for us to leave it for today, but that just means that we're going to have a lot of chances to come back and talk about some more of these intersections and some more of the ways in which this discipline is touching on exactly what you're saying, liturgics and systematics and the practice of lived faith. And I'm very, very excited to continue having those conversations. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time today. David, thank you for taking the time today. (laughs) It's good to be with you as always.